Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. Bueno, ¿qué pasó anoche? Okay, no es lo que esperaba, pero tenía el nivel perfecto de picante. Suena interesante y caliente. Tenía todo el sabor. Los ghost pepper wings de Popeyes son tan deliciosos. Espera, yo pensé que hablábamos de tu cita. A veces las cosas no son lo que parecen. Pruebo hoy los Ghost Pepper Wings de Popeyes por 5 dólares, que tienen el nivel perfecto de sabor y picante. Por tiempo limitado en restaurantes participantes de Estados Unidos, precio puede variar, impuestos extra. Time for Millennials, Season 7, Episode 9. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Happy International Women's Appreciation Day, y'all. That's the day that we are recording this show. And the whole month of March is Women's Appreciation Month. Pam, do you feel appreciated? Um, I guess so. <laughs> do you feel yeah. appreciated? Oh, boy. Yeah, Fishing for compliments. So. All right, here I go. I appreciate both of you. No. <laughs> no, it's just I... No, what I always find very interesting about Women's Appreciation Day, month, what have you, is some people will have very strong feelings about it. I had a colleague once who I like went up to her and I was like, happy Women's Appreciation Day. And her response was to be like, we don't need that anymore. We're equal now. And I was yeah, like, right. no, well, no <laughs> we're not. Um, but then also, on the other hand, there are a lot of groups who are taking it upon themselves to use this moment to amplify the voices of women all over the world who are subject to some pretty horrible conditions and crimes. So I really like seeing that people are using the occasion to like highlight those occasions along with highlighting women's accomplishments. Um, the, the accomplishment side of things is something that we focused on on MuggleCast this past weekend, where we talked about all of our favorite women from the Harry Potter series and they're mostly wonderful accomplishments. There are some things that you have to like. <laughs> I'm thinking of like Umbridge, for example. You could be like, well, that's an accomplishment, I guess. But it's not a good one, right? Right. Um, yeah. But no, we spent a lot of time celebrating all of those women. Um, so yeah, I just love seeing the range of like mostly positive <laughs> yeah. takes on it. It's funny because I, I mean, and I hate to say this because I, I guess in a way it I'm not trying to like shame anybody when I say this, but I do think it's really funny that a lot of the celeb culture around International Women's Day is just deeply rooted in posting hot selfies of themselves, you know? Is it? But mm. yeah, that's like basically a lot of what I saw on my timeline. But but I really like the idea of um, using this day to amplify voices of um, women that are often uh, not given a platform, so... That's a yeah. great take. Yeah. And I think it's so important, especially being in the West, remembering to use this as an opportunity for intersectionality. So often white feminism kind of takes over the narrative. And so to Pam's point, you see people posting a bunch of hot selfies of themselves 
Um, <laughs> and they're like, so blessed to be a woman in America. And it's like, okay, well, that's not the case for everyone. And also we have our fair share of issues that we have to deal with here too. Um, so I just, I like the reminder that women, like that encompasses a whole lot more people than I think white feminism tends to give it credit for. Yeah. Also, like um, Jennifer in the Discord is talking about how International Women's Day has shut out LGBTQ plus folks as well as yes. POC in the past as well. So just important to remember that when you are thinking about today, you should think about all women, not just like the traditional definition of what a woman is supposed to be. Yeah. Or not just women who look like you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, we got new album art. This is a, I don't know how to transition out of that. We had some new artwork <laughs> made for Millennial starring our two women and me um, for our social media channels. And just to help promote the show, we learned at a podcasting conference a year or two ago, or this was a suggestion that we've run with. When potential new listeners want to check out a podcast, they might go to the website or social media. Let them see smiling faces. To know that you're a friendly, down-to-earth podcast. So it turned out really good. Everybody, please do check it out. We've been getting a lot of good feedback about it, too. Um, I did have one question, though, and I meant to ask the artist, Emily. There's like a little device laying next to Pam's coffee mug, and I don't know what it is. It looks like a pager or like a phone from the 90s. I know. I feel like I know what it is, and I think it should have actually been near Laura's coffee cup. It should have been by me. <laughs> Oh, is that? Um, oh, that's a, yeah. That is a oh, vape pen, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I asked this on air because I really did not know what that was. But thanks for sharing, Laura. I really appreciate that you know yeah. you're making sure that I also stay uh, aptly medicated while we're doing. She's this passing show. the pipe around. Yeah, that's yeah, nice. exactly. Puff, puff, pass. <laughs> Nobody's getting my can of Lacroix though. Y'all can fuck off and get your own. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of references to Millennial throughout the artwork. Definitely check it out. And she went above and beyond. She um, put a bookcase in the frame and she came up with a bunch of different book titles. You're going to have to zoom in on the photo to to read the titles, but they were really clever. I'm actually really impressed that she came up with those without our input. And yet they're exactly what we would want to put on these book titles, on these book spines. People in the Discord, too, realized that it was a vape. I don't know. Like, I <laughs> apparently I'm not looking at vapes enough because I didn't recognize it at don't all. Don't you live with a smoker? Yeah, like, I do. But obviously he... not a cigarette smoker, to clarify. Or are but you just a... thinking about, like, an actual pen now? Because they're, they're a little bit more right. pen-like these yeah, days. Yeah, like Pat has a vape pen, Yeah, not a vape pager. That's, like, one of the first ones I ever saw. It's just, like, a little, it's, like, a little flat black square Mm. And the little thing just like flips out. Yeah. So those are, they tend to be more powerful and you can customize the voltage a bit more. Typically with those just old regular old vape pens, there's not much customization that can happen. But, you know, if you like to take some really, uh, if you like to make some really big clouds <laughs> as, uh, you know, part of like the smoker lingo culture, mm -hmm. um, those folks might say, then you might want one of those beefier vapes because it allows you to customize the voltage to achieve that effect customize the voltage yeah. <laughs> wow okay <laughs> anyway check that out it's on our social media channels and we did a round of posts on our channels as well so you can get a closer look at the art and thank you emily for creating this very cool artwork for us and by the way we were able to have that made because of support 
from listeners like you. Supporting us using the uh, ads or pledging on Patreon helps us get artwork made, new sound effects, all kinds of things. So thank you to all of our listeners as always. Yeah, and just a little bit of quick politics news here at the top of the show that we're not going to spend a ton of time on. Um, But the Senate did pass the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package last week. Um, So heads to the House next. So in part, there are a lot of things that are included in this bill. um, But I think what people are most looking forward to are their next stimmies, as the kids call them now. Um, Is that what people call them? It's a weird word. Well, especially when it was really small. Like people started joking around and calling it a stimmy because it was only $600. (laughs) But something that is worth noting is that reportedly 12 million fewer people will get a stimulus check um, now compared to people who got it under the previous administration. And that's because um, an income limit has been placed on that. So if your income was $80,000 or up, you would not qualify for a stimulus payment. Um, so just something to keep in mind. I, you know, I personally think that if we're, if we're going to start nickel and diming people um, over who made $80,000 versus who made $79,000, when that's really in this day and age, like a very middle class salary to have, especially if you live in a city, um, I just feel like it's it's unnecessary posturing <laughs> that's happening, and I just don't see how this helps anybody. I've raised this point before on the show. If somebody gets too much stimulus money, you can easily correct for that when they go to file taxes the following year. Anyone who's already started their tax filing process this year will have noticed that it asks you how much stimulus money you got last year. And if you got too much, then you're going to owe a little bit more on your taxes. I agree with that. But Biden was looking for a compromise and the Republicans were balking at the the price tag of this relief package. So he had to do something. And that was that was the big compromise. So I, you know, I just don't get I'm like, what do you mean? Like, and I don't mean you, Andrew, specifically. I just mean, like, what what do they mean? Compromise. Democrats control everything. Like, why? Are they shitting their pants over the minority party not liking something? Couldn't Republicans have filibustered it? uh, They could have, but Democrats could also kill the fucking filibuster. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just like, come on. Like, my feeling is the Republicans have already shown us that they're going to try and find every loophole, every way to obstruct, because they're already doing it. Mm -hmm. They're already doing it. What was it? Was it Josh Hawley that made them read the entire bill yeah i don't think it was him but yeah they had to read the the whole damn bill it was 685 pages the new york times was like and that's longer than harry potter and the half-blood prince (laughs) and not as enjoyable of a read um but also i mean republicans are threatening to stonewall everything if democrats kill the filibuster but they're already stonewalling everything so why not just kill the filibuster and get some shit done guys i know that's a discussion for another time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then in another um, note related to the conversation we had last week about state level restrictive voting laws, Biden actually signed an executive order to expand voting rights um, in direct response to some of these measures happening at the state level. So I thought that was like very uh, 
Very timely. I didn't know Biden listened to our show. I was going to say, yeah, he listened to the pod, got really angry, said that's a bunch of malarkey, and then he signed this executive order. So thank you, Joe. On a Sunday night. Really? On a Sunday he did night? It, he did it on Sunday, uh, like late afternoon. He and wasn't was like, wow. He wasn't pre-gaming for Oprah's interview with Harry and Meghan on Sunday? <laughs> I know we all were. <laughs> Okay, so we are going to jump into politics um, because we've got a few other stories on the docket this week. We are keeping politics a little bit shorter just to make time for those others. But I'm also really glad that we're getting to devote the entire political discussion this week to this topic because it is so important. Um, And that's to say we want to talk today about something we've touched on before, but we've not gone super deep on yet which is the increase in violence towards the Asian-American Pacific Islanders community here in the United States. Before we dive in, I want to give a shout out to Michelle, who has written in requesting coverage of this topic and also kindly gathered their resources and provided them to us to help us put this discussion together. So thank you, Michelle. And I want to start out by saying that I certainly don't mean to imply that this increase in hateful rhetoric isn't happening elsewhere in the world, because it certainly is. But in the U.S., this is highlighting a couple of very important problems. One, the lack of mainstream representation of Asian people, not just in media, but in general data reporting. And two, how inconsistently the United States is measuring hate crimes year to year. Now, no one needs to know the dictionary definition here, but when you think of a hate crime, what sorts of criteria or even real life cases does that term make you feel of? Just to sort of set uh, a foundation here. My gut reaction for hate crime is usually probably steeped more in violent fatalities. But I know that that is not always the case. I think that that's more like the extreme. So it is part of it. But it it probably isn't like like a well-rounded definition, if that makes sense. I'm sure it encompasses more than just, you know, violent deaths. I mean, to me, when I think of that phrase, I think of targeted prejudice against like my minority groups so not necessarily just like yeah races but also um you know like the um the lgbt community as well mm-hmm. yeah exactly so this would be for any kind of crime involving violence that's motivated by prejudice on the basis of race national origin religion sexual orientation gender gender identity or disability so yeah you guys hit it right on the head Um, And just this year, we've seen some horrific examples of members of the AAPI community being brutalized or even killed. Um, Members and advocates of the community are pointing towards the incendiary rhetoric of former President Trump, who spent nearly a year coming up with nicknames for the coronavirus like Chinese virus and Kung flu, among others. I'm wondering... What has been our reaction over the course of the pandemic to this kind of rhetoric, which was clearly intended to point the finger at China and more broadly Asia? Right. I mean, that was going to be my thought. Trump was only doing it to remind people that coronavirus didn't start in America He's not responsible for it. My whole thought as soon as I started hearing uh, those words tossed around was that it's so dangerous. And I, I know you're going to get to some specific examples here. 
Um, and again, not that it doesn't happen in other places, but violence against Asian Americans specifically, there, there's a lot of deep seated history with stuff like that happening where I'm from out here in the Bay Area, uh, probably because our Chinatown is one of the oldest in the country. And so for me, stuff like this is uh, local history, but also not anything new. And I just think growing up learning about the dark past of how uh, this group of people were treated out here just sort of um, caused some automatic red flags to go up. And it's really frustrating because, you know, so many people were downplaying stuff like, you know, using the Kung flu to to point the finger as though it can't have disastrous consequences. And it's just really sad that we're seeing it now you know, still. Mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting that you raise the point, Pam, about like being raised in the Pacific Northwest, um, that in school, you probably learned more about Asian American history than we did anywhere else in the country. Um, I mean, I genuinely cannot think of a time in my schooling where that was ever a subject. Yeah, me neither. The thing is, too, is like they still have the concentration camp um, buildings up on like Angel Island and stuff like that, where they shipped uh, Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor and stuff like that. So I, I appreciate that, you know, San Francisco and the Bay Area doesn't make an effort to hide that stuff. But at the same time, you know, like if you're not looking for the information, I don't want to give like the area too much credit because you could easily walk by stuff like that and just not bat an eyelash or not understand why it's really important to keep um, areas like Chinatown and San Francisco safe, you know, and protected and like ungentrified and stuff like that. So it's it's a bit of like a double-edged sword. And I think mm -hmm. it's really easy, especially if you live somewhere that does not have a particularly dense um, Asian American Pacific Islanders population. Um, I think it can be really easy if you don't have that lived experience to hear this kind of rhetoric and roll your eyes and think like, how horrible, what a horrible thing to say. Um, but not like even if you're a very empathetic person, not connect the dots between the words and their impact. And that's something we hear about all the time. Right. As we have these continued conversations about the advancement of civil rights. But that impact can range from shunning to workplace discrimination to civil rights violations, verbal and physical assaults property destruction, and so much more. These are all things that members of the AAPI community have experienced in this country over the course of the pandemic. Um, and that's all according to an advocacy group called Stop AAPI Hate, which has documented 2,800 cases of firsthand experience with hate incidents towards Asians in the last year in the United States. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm just going to let y'all I'm going to let that sit with y'all for a moment because um, it's, again, not something that is getting tons of traction in the news. Right. Like it, it's very interesting to sort of contrast this with the events of last summer, um, which everyone on this panel is, you know, completely supportive of Black Lives Matter and moves to call for accountability for 
brutality against the Black community in this country. But not once have we ever had this national reckoning about the way that Asian Americans are being treated right now. Do you guys see this being something that would ever permeate mass media? I actually think there's a decent amount of attention on this specific issue, uh, which has been nice to see. I've actually seen mass media outlets, including Disney, release statements recognizing what's happening and reminding everyone that it's wrong and that we need to do better. And I guess my hope is that the increased attention in time causes a steady decrease in the number of crimes that we're seeing. Because recognition amongst the public is a very important first step. It is not being ignored. I don't know if this is quite the same, but I also think that like... In terms of pop culture, Asian entertainment has never been more relevant. So Mm -hmm. like the rise of popularity in K-dramas or K-pop groups, and obviously like not every every Asian community identifies as Korean. But my point in bringing this up is that I've seen a lot on Twitter, uh, people talking about how if you're, you know, a fan of like any kind of entertainment that's coming out of you know, Asian countries, then you should be uh, educated on how uh, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are being treated right now in America as somebody from North America, you know, consuming um, entertainment that's coming out of these other countries, especially when people here are being targeted for, you know, um, basically just like what they look like and what their, uh, their races and stuff. So, um, I do appreciate that conversation happening as well, because it's really easy to um, enjoy other people's cultures without actually understanding um, how hard it is for the every man in those cultures to exist sometimes. Yeah. So, no, I think you're right. And that actually makes me think of a point that um Rashida raised in our Discord chat. Um, Rashida said, for example... South Asians tend to be underrepresented, especially in Hollywood. So I think, especially, you know, in in this part of the world, if you were to ask somebody to, like, specify what Asian nationalities they're familiar with, there's going to be a handful of, like, the most common answers. And those answers might not include Thailand (laughs) or India. Um, So that's just another element of this conversation that makes it, it it makes it really difficult to kind of nail down. But moving forward, um, the AAPI hate group actually has a press release detailing all of their reporting and their methodology for ha- for these 28 cases of um, hate crimes experienced firsthand in the country. So we'll link to that in the show notes. 2800. Um, yeah. Okay. But through this, it becomes pretty painfully clear that there is a gap between what people are experiencing and what's being reported by the FBI. Part of that is due to conflicting definitions of what constitutes a hate crime. And part of it is also due to many states and localities not reporting their data consistently or thoroughly. Um, And an additional layer of complexity here is how, from a legal standpoint, can we prove that a criminal robbed someone or spit on someone or killed someone on the basis of criteria included in the definition of a hate crime? Right. You'd have to prove Justin their intent. Actually, and that sounds yeah. tough. 
Yeah. So Justin actually pointed out in our Discord that those cases are really hard to win because how do you prove someone's racist? Or how do you prove that somebody targeted somebody for a violent crime because of the color of their skin? Right. I'm wondering if we've heard from anyone we know about believing that they have faced discrimination due to the pandemic. Uh, yeah, I have a friend that lives in in uh, in London and she's from the Bay Area and she said that both um, herself out in the UK and also her family out here uh, have experienced some toxicity as a direct result of this. I know that we have members of the millennial community who have shared this in like our Facebook group or our Discord and we're all just so thankful for your vulnerability in the face of this, because it can't be easy to relive that trauma. Yeah. Um, so thank you for sharing that. But just to give some examples, um, just last month, an 84-year-old um, Thai immigrant from San Francisco died after being violently shoved to the ground during his morning walk. The result of that shove was that he died. And the challenge there is, like, did the person who shoved him intend for him to die? It's really hard to know that. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes these cases so challenging and why, you know, many with legal backgrounds ask that they be considered on a case by case basis. But how do you do that and not make an entire community of people feel like they aren't being heard? Yeah. I think that's the challenge here. Like, how do we close the gap? The FBI's 2020 hate crime data isn't available yet. Um, but the FBI is cautioning that they're expecting the number of hate crimes to be higher this year because of the pandemic specifically. Um, however, critics of this reporting have observed that this data may not always uh, be the best thing to believe because a certain state reported zero hate crimes in 2019. And I'm wondering if y'all want to venture a guess as to which state this was. Was it Georgia? Alabama. <laughs> no. Close, though. It was Alabama, our next-door neighbor. <laughs> um, and it's just, <laughs> for a state like Alabama to be like, no, we had zero hate crimes. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I, it just seems like the challenge to how we confront this as a culture, it's just not a small one. We have to contend with the fact that the inaccuracies of reporting hate crimes in the U.S. is not an issue that's going to be rectified anytime soon. So... What can we do as individuals to support our brothers and sisters in the AAPI community and say, we take your lived experiences seriously, while also acknowledging that there are a lot of people who aren't getting justice mm -hmm. right now? Yeah. I know that's a big question to answer. Well, yeah. I mean, in addition to what you were basically just saying, validating them, getting more Asian Americans depicted in media. You know, even Asian cultures depicted in media uh, supporting projects you see like that, because ultimately, as with so many of these issues we've seen over the years, it's just about including everybody so they're not perceived as other. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that. And then also just like um, keeping it in the back of your mind that uh, Hollywood representation is not necessarily indicative of the whole um, I know that that was a conversation that was had specifically when Crazy Rich Asians came out. Good for them for, you know, breaking box office standards, though, because progress is still progress. Mm -hmm. I think also just like, you know, being aware and, and putting in the work to to learn more about 
other communities that are different than you and not turning a blind eye when stuff like this um, gets brought up in the news. Because contrary to popular belief, uh, you know, viewers really set the trend for what gets most coverage on the news. And so the more stuff like this is covered, I think the the more aware we are as a, as a whole. Yeah, I think one of the things that I would like to do is try to familiarize myself with the coded language that exists around this issue. Like, Pam, like you and I know, like, there's certain coded language that exists for women that is used about women um, that if that's not how you identify, you might not pick up on the implications of it. But you and I, with our lived experiences walking through the world as women, we know immediately what's being said about us. Um, I've had, <laughs> I literally had somebody tell me once that I was uh, good at my job because I'm so motherly. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's a lot. There's like so much to unpack there. On its face, if you, you know, if you're not walking through the world as a woman, you might not see what the problem with that is. So one of the things I would like to endeavor to do is try to learn, I mean, broadly, as it would apply to anybody, but specifically related to this case, um, I would like to learn about more of that coded language so that I'm so that I could feel empowered if I hear it in the moment to speak up. Yeah, it's a good idea. Something else that we'll also plug, and this was something Michelle sent us as well, um, there is an Asian American Pacific Islanders community fund um, that is over on GoFundMe. So we'll provide the link to that in the show notes. They have a $1 million goal, and they are currently at $657,395. So still a good ways to go um, towards that goal, but this will really help uplift and support members of the community. So we definitely recommend giving there. Stamps.com is sponsoring this week's episode of Millennial. Stamps.com has saved businesses thousands of hours and tons of money. With Stamps.com, you get the services of the post office and UPS all in one place, plus big discounts on mailing and shipping rates. I love using Stamps.com because it saves me time and a trip to the post office. For example, I owed someone a millennial t-shirt this week, and instead of having to head out, I popped their address right into Stamps.com and got a label. Then my mail person was able to pick up the package and send it on its way. Stamps.com will also email the recipient a tracking number, which is super convenient. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. Stamps.com is a must-have for any business, whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller shipping out orders, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's just that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts up to 40% off post office rates and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Stop wasting time going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk, and with our promo code M-I-L-L, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in M-I-L-L. That's Stamps.com, promo code M-I-L-L. 
Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Okay, on to some later topics. WandaVision finished its season over the weekend. I was not particularly blown away by the finale. I think the focus of the show turned too far to Agatha when I was preferring a bigger war and bigger focus on the people who were outside the bubble. I'm trying to speak cautiously here without spoiling people. While I really love the Agatha song that everybody's been obsessed with, I am not (laughs) so much as obsessed with the Agatha plotline. I don't know. What do you two think? I think I still have more questions, but I think that was the point because it it really is like I kept having to remind myself that at the end of the day, all of these uh, series, not just WandaVision, are are, uh, a small piece of a larger puzzle. Yeah. It's hard to really decide whether or not it's satisfying until we see them all come together. It's really hard to get into how this is all connected without getting into spoiler territory, so I won't. Um, But this leads directly into one of the next MCU movies that's going to be coming out. Not the next next one, but maybe like one that's coming out in a couple of years. Um, So there were there was a lot of groundwork done in a previous MCU movie to explain the impact of the ending of this series. Doctor Strange would be a good movie to go back and watch if you're like, wait, like. Why should I care about the way this ended? And also, I think certain storylines that you might be led to believe are over might not be over. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that this is going to tie into the Doctor Strange sequel. No, not so, at all. And, and but, that comes out in 2022. Yeah, but if you if you review, like if you went back and watched the first Doctor Strange movie, there would be some stuff that would make you go, oh, okay. that's why. Okay. Yeah, I think I have to do that because... It's been a while. Largely, you know, the season on a whole, I was cool with, but the ending, I don't know, it just didn't capture me. I just wasn't feeling it. I will say, in terms of the criticism, I think the show could have benefited from one more episode um, because they were really setting up a lot in that last episode. And I think given the show's slow burn, especially in the first few episodes, it could have benefited from an extra episode in there to give them a little more breathing room. But that's my only critique. Well, with WandaVision out of the way, next is Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which premieres March 19th. And it's going to be six episodes. And then Loki is getting his own TV series. Uh, Again, another limited series. Also six episodes. And that premieres June 11th. I'm more excited for Loki than Falcon. Just because... Falcon seems more like a lighthearted buddy comedy sort of thing, buddy cop comedy sort of thing. Whereas I think Loki might be a little deeper and weirder. We'll see. I could be completely wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, WandaVision provided viewers with something that nobody was quite expecting. So I will definitely give Falcon and Winter Soldier the benefit of the doubt. I'm excited for Probably both, but I, I'm not like unenthused about Falcon and Winter Soldier. Also, I saw this. This happened on Monday. So some people this afternoon tried to watch Tom and Jerry, the new animated Tom and Jerry movie on HBO Max. They loaded it up on Monday and they accidentally got part one of Zack Snyder's Justice League, which doesn't come out until March 18th, I believe. 
how does HBO Max screw that up so badly where some kid presses play on Tom and Jerry and the new Justice League that isn't even out yet starts playing? I mean, come on. I'm so mad this wasn't me. <laughs> you wish. Are you excited for Justice League? I'm just curious. Like this, just, yeah. the Snyder Cut's been getting so much buzz. Um, I don't know. I, I'm I'm interested to see what they do. And it would have been yeah. nice to have seen it early because, you know, that's always nice. Yeah, we should spend more t- more time on this another time because um, it has an interesting story, the director's cut. And so that would be fun to talk about. I never watched the original Justice League that was released a couple years ago. I'm tempted to watch it just because I've heard such bad things. And then I'm curious to see just how different it is than uh, from the Snyder cut, uh, which I think is large. It's like... I think he only used like 25% of the original cut or something like that. So I think they're going to be radically different. Yeah, it's like four hours long, I think. I know. Or something. But they're only, they're releasing it in parts. So they are. But they're releasing all four parts at the same time. I thought they were releasing them a week apart. Really? That's what Lilani told me. Originally, they said they were going to space it out. And I thought, well, that's really smart because, yeah, you keep people in Keep people subscribed. So it's Mm going to all be released at the same time? Yeah. I'm going to clear my schedule then, I guess. But then that's like, why is it cut up in four parts if it's all being released at once? I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot like, I mean, I know that they're expanding on certain characters um, and there are going to be some characters that like we didn't even see uh, in like the original. Yeah, there's going to be a big cameo at the end. I read in a piece on the New York Times. So, yeah, I mean, DC fans are super excited. This is what they've wanted all along. Um, Again, maybe we can get into that in greater detail another time but some people were lucky enough to see justice league part one uh, on monday very early good for them to me that you know if i want to put a crackpot theory out there wb accidentally did that so that when it started going viral on twitter that they accidentally uploaded justice league all the dc nerds are going to go click play on tom and jerry and then they're going to artificially boost the Tom and Jerry viewership numbers because people thought if they hit play, they might see Justice League. That's that's messed up. And I wouldn't put it past the Hollywood stu- studio to do that. Makes sense because I didn't know Tom and Jerry was out today. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is a new movie. It was one of those movies that was supposed to be in theaters. Yeah. And then like WB said, they're putting all their movies, new movies on HBO Max throughout the year. But... Screw all that, because on Sunday night, Pam, what were you and I doing? And we were watching Laura? the uh, television event it? of the year. Oh, my God. You watched it, too? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so obsessed with The Crown. I could That's not fair. watch this. We should have known. Oh, my God. Andrew, you should have just texted all three of us. I thought you were just well, texting Well, you were The because... Crown super. You're the royal super fan. Yeah, didn't even see it until an hour in because I was like, everything needs to be turned off so I can focus on Oprah Winfrey's interview with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. And we were not the only ones that tuned in. The numbers came back and over 17 million people also watched this uh, two-hour primetime event on CBS or Paramount Plus because you could also stream it on there if you didn't have cable. Good little push for them since they're the new streamer on the block, kind of. But you can't watch it on demand on Paramount Plus. 
Ooh. That's a big flub. Because Harpo, I read into this already. Harpo has the on-demand streaming rights. Anyway, yeah, wow. that's a ton of people. I think 17 mm-hmm. million people tuned in. In par- I think that number is so big in part because of The Crown. People like me who watched it on Netflix and became more interested in the royal family. Well, I guess Laura too, right? Because you you were just saying before we we hopped in that the crown has made you a little bit more invested, right? Yeah, um, that, but also <laughs> the like sort of intersection of that interest, but also um, the very real colonialism that. Uh, was surfaced in this interview and and the themes associated with it that um, defines uh, Meghan Markle's experience as a member of the royal family. Those are things that were very interesting to me, but also enraging. So what were the big revelations, Pam? Yeah, I mean, like, let's talk about that. I guess we can start with, um, I think, one of the most shocking revelations that came out of this was this idea that while Meghan and Harry were expecting Archie, there was apparently some conversations had between Harry and certain other members of the royal family that have not been named about how dark their baby was going to be when he was born. Horrible. Yeah, that was the worst thing that we learned. Yeah. I mean, it's just pure and simple racism. And the the royals have a history of racism. And I guess one reason why this is so shocking is because you would think in 2021, this wouldn't be an issue. But it was really disappointing. I liked the point that Megan mentioned when they were discussing this particularly painful moment for her to revisit, which she was like, I mean, the Commonwealth is primarily populated by people of color. So it would have, you know, never occurred to me to think that this could be anything but like a bonus that you have people of color in the royal family who, you know, members of the Commonwealth can look to and be like, oh, there are people who look like me there, too. Um, But clearly not everyone in the family shares that point of view. We do also know um, Oprah did clarify. Apparently, Harry asked her if he or. Harry asked her if she ever had a chance to delve further into that discussion that she specified that this comment did not come from the queen or from Philip. So that really narrows down the pool of people that it could have possibly been. I think it was Charles. I think it was Charles, too. Yeah. I mean, like, fucked up. Yeah, because it has to be somebody high up. It's not going to be like fergie and beatrice you know there was also this talk of the firm so there's there's the family and then there's the the firm and that's kind of like the business side of the royal family it's the people working behind the scenes who you never see you plan their schedules and and pr and all that i thought that was really interesting too hearing them talk about that because my my thought is where does the buck stop and i wish oprah asked this question Who is ultimately responsible for the decisions that happen around the royal family? It's got to be the queen, right? So even though maybe the queen didn't say this thing, even though maybe the queen didn't specifically say, cut off Harry financially, don't give him security and stuff like that. Let's assume that was all the firm or maybe Charles. It's also the queen's fault, too, because she's head honcho. Yeah, I was thinking about that, too. Like, who's really running the show? 
Yeah. Like, like for example, there was this also uh, a terrible revelation that came out about how uh, Megan's mental health was really bad and how she was thinking about ending her life because things got so bad. And she also went on to talk about how nobody would let her leave to get help, even though she really felt like she needed it. And at that yeah. point, it's just like, who's making that decision? Like, are they calling the queen and asking if this woman can go to the hospital and the queen is saying no? And if it's not her... Who is it? Who is it? Right. And why isn't it the queen? And is it a big deal to us if it's actually not the queen running anything there? And like, why does that person have so much power? I don't know. It's all so interesting. It is really hard to wrap my head around. And it's probably the same for our whole panel. It's like we, we don't have a royal family in this country. So it's really hard to make heads or tails of like why such a thing is relevant. Not to say that the royal family is irrelevant, um, but it's just, it's not some, it's not, it's like a 1200 year old institution that does not exist in this country. And I think that was something that Megan spoke to as well when she was like, I didn't know anything about the royal family. Mm-hmm. I just fell in love with Harry. Right. Yeah. And she had so, to learn how to curtsy on the spot. That was kind of yeah, a, a funny, funny moment. Yeah. I think we've kind of run through all these revelations, at least the ones that uh, we have listed here. I mean, Tyler Perry had to help uh, Harry and Meghan get security. Like, that was nuts, too. Um, Really, what it came down to, in Harry's words, is that they never had the support that they needed from the royal family. And that's why they decided to leave. Also, by the way, Oprah, masterclass interviewer. It was a fantastic interview. She pushed. She asked follow-up questions. She was really listening. And responding to what they were saying. It was fascinating. And Oprah's all also got ways of kind of injecting some fun or, you know, making the moment a little bit lighter, but also being really, really serious when she needs to. She even brought up the crown. I was not expecting a crown <laughs> reference, but that's Oprah for you. She wants to have a little fun too. In general, like it's kind of crazy that they, the firm felt like it was okay to cut off Harry's protection, you mm-hmm. know? Because like he he made a really good point about how he he was um, born into the situation, and so like you would think that that would mean that you know they're directly responsible for making sure that he's okay because it's not yeah his fault that he he needs that he saw history repeating itself that was really yeah, fascinating yeah. too he said what happened to my mom. I'm as I'm afraid is what's going to happen to Megan, you know, yeah. or at least go in that direction. And good on him for recognizing that and and piecing out. Um, I mean, it's just really again what this all comes down to is racism. They they did not like that Megan was mixed race. They were in fear that this kid was going to be, uh, you know, a darker skin color. Just awful. I guess I can't say I'm a fan of the royal family anymore. I mean, who can after seeing that interview? It's um it's pretty damning and you know none of us are I don't think any of us are old enough to like like we all remember Diana but I don't think that we're old enough to remember the significance of her death at the time or the significance Agreed. of her 1995 interview mm-hmm. um where she basically she made <laughs> made very similar she levied very similar criticisms against the royal family um and my mom is like super like up on the royals and the news. And I was talking to her about it the other day and she was like, yeah, when that all happened, I mean, 
the royal family very nearly lost in the court of public opinion. Like it came so, so close. And to her perspective, she was kind of like, I can definitely see why it might appear that they're the royal family or the firm is trying to do damage control right now ahead of what they see as like a Diana part two situation, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which that's pretty disturbing if that's the case. But again, that's just speculation. It's so funny because my mom is the exact same way. Like, you know, she has like a (laughs) Diana bear and like that little cassette single of, Elton John's she has like all this Diana memorabilia I don't know if it's like a 90s mom thing or what it must be yeah but she was just like glued to the television she stayed up late for this interview y'all and uh and she said she said something very similar that it's just like very reminiscent whether people want to make connections between Megan and Diana or not for whatever reason Yeah, I think that that's incredibly intriguing. And also, I thought it was very interesting that Harry said that the only reason that they were able to serve, not that they're like destitute, but the reason that they were able to survive and like do with what they did to get out is because of the money that Diana left behind for him. And he made that comment about how he feels like his mom saw it coming. And and I wouldn't even be surprised if that were the case. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Uh, The royal family have not issued a statement, I don't believe yet, about that interview. Maybe they're going to try to let it blow over. I would have expected if they were going to say something, they would have been prepared for this. Well, the press about Meghan specifically has been particularly vicious in the days leading up to this interview. So I think there may have been some work going on behind the scenes to try and beat them to the punch. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just very quickly. Um, Harry and Meghan are doing just fine. They have a Netflix deal that they inked last fall. They also have a I didn't write this in the doc, but there's a Spotify deal as well. So uh, they are going to, you know, be making sure they earn that money to keep the security around since the royal family isn't going to help out anymore. And they've been uh, yeah, exactly. financially cut off since the beginning of this year. So they need that Tyler Perry money. And they're trying to get it (laughs) with podcasts and Netflix originals. All right. We also wanted to speak about internet accessibility today. And to do that, we are joined now by one of our Bay Level patrons, Kayla. Hi, Kayla. Hey. Hey. Tell us about yourself. Well, I live in North Central Arkansas with my husband and our three-year-old and our four dogs. Um, I work for a rural telecommunications and broadband company doing marketing and design, public relations. We don't have a marketing department. So like it's anything that's weird and creative kind of falls on my shoulders. So and because you work at this company, this broadband company, you also told me that you are very passionate about internet accessibility. And it's very interesting to me too, because A, I'm a nerd and B, it's a really, really important subject. So can you first tell us what is internet accessibility? What does that mean? Yeah. Okay. So I think that it's important to clarify that when I when we're talking about accessibility here, we're talking about like the physical accessibility. We don't mean like the web standards. Like when when web designers talk about accessibility, they're more talking about um everyone being able to see the content. So even the visually impaired are able to see the content. What we're talking about is more the infrastructure. Being able to get um, internet, a connection to the internet. Being able to get and being able to afford the internet that's available. So 
what is the current state of high speed internet availability? Because this is one big factor here. It's it's not just um, the price and just simply being able to have that connection if you want it, but um, also the speed. So what is the current state of high speed internet availability for rural, which is where you live, or low income families? Yeah, um, let's. So I think it's important to first kind of define rural, which is very fluid when we're talking about what the the government considers rural. Um, they say that about 19% of the U.S. population, which is around 60 million people, are considered rural, but that 97% of our land mass is rural. So there's mm. a, a lot of the land is rural, but not very many people live in rural. I see. Okay. The rural demographic generally tends to be lower income, older, and um, not as highly educated in terms of a college degree. And and then they also work more in manufacturing jobs than, you know, a, a white collar careers. But when we're looking at the rural accessibility, uh, uh, rural access to internet, there are various factors that contribute to why rural communities don't have access. That could be the terrain, like, for example, Arkansas is kind of notorious for growing rocks. So if you're trying to bury fiber to rural communities in Arkansas, it's expensive because you're hitting a lot of rocks and Mm -hmm. you're not hitting a lot of people. So it's very expensive, which drives the cost of the services up and rural people can't, you know, it's, it's harder for rural people to afford that. All of that to say that the current state of rural access is that you've got fewer people online um, in rural communities, and COVID has particularly been uh, a hard year for that. Yeah, because now everybody's working from home, or a lot more people are working from home, and a lot of kids are learning from home, and they need a reliable internet connection. They need a fast inter- internet connection for Zoom, Skype, whatever, um, and they need to be able to afford it. And we'll talk about one way the FCC has been trying to help in uh, that regard in a little bit. But give us some stats on internet access. In 2019, uh, the FCC reported that there were over 421 billion connections in the U.S., but 31% of those were connected below what they consider as the benchmarks for broadband. That's the defining speeds for broadband. As Andrew kind of touched on at at my house, I have a 10-in-1 internet connection. I've got 10 megabytes for download and one megabyte per second for upload. The FCC's benchmark for what's considered adequate is 25 megabytes per second download and three megabytes per second upload. And we'll touch a little bit later on on whether that's adequate, uh, you know, for, for that being an adequate definition. But working for an internet company and working from home and not being able to have an adequate connection has been probably one of the most frustrating things um, for me personally yeah. during this pandemic. Yeah, yeah, I bet. That sounds excruciating. I mean, I'm in pain when my internet goes out for like 10 minutes. So I can't imagine, you know, having like a steady, really slow connection. Yeah. yeah and it's, I love listening to you guys whenever you're like uh, talking about your internet speeds or you're trying to talk about, you know, you're talking about it's crashing or I know. I know you guys know what it means for your speeds not to be sufficient, but for rural Americans who are now faced with schooling their kids at home and they have to drive 
20 minutes to the nearest hotspot connection or to drive 45 minutes to the nearest library just to be able to connect and do their schoolwork. Um, that really sheds a light on the digital divide. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, too, the problem, and, and this is probably particularly true of people who live where internet is more accessible, people think of it as like a luxury or like frivolous, like, oh, I get on the internet to watch Netflix, or I got on the internet to like, get on Zoom and talk to my friends. But the reality is, it, it is so it is a utility, right? Like it is, it is considered a public utility, right? But I don't think people think about it that way. No. Yeah. And you know, um, when I started in my role at my company, I worked in a, I started in an IT support position. So I was doing phone calls with people who were having trouble connecting to their internet. And, you know, we're getting calls from people who are only like at the fastest they're able to get is a four megabyte download connection, which won't even support streaming Netflix, mm, um, yeah. you know, in, in yeah. standard depth. And I remember one instance talking to a person um, who was hearing impaired and their internet connection was out and they couldn't make phone calls because they couldn't get to their translator service, oh. which was a video based translation <sighs> yeah. service. Yeah. Wow. So let's share what our speeds and costs are. And then Kayla can cry because <laughs> I, I shared mine with her. She was like, no, I'm so jealous. So I live in a new area. So I don't know if this plays a role in that. But I do have fiber here. Or I have gigabit Ethernet, which is super fast. It's a thousand down and like 500 up or something like that. I pay $65 a month for that. It's lightning fast. You know, it never chokes. Laura's like cursing. I'm, I'm so mad right now. I'll, <laughs> you'll hear why when we get to my turn. Well, yeah, so it's really good. I'm wondering if it's an introductory offer because it is new for the area. But $65, I didn't read anything that said this is a limited time deal. So I think uh, I get this forever. And yeah, it's really great. Laura, what is yours? Well, I have the same package as you and I pay $95 a month for it. Dang. And we're not even living at the fucking house where we get that internet right Why now. Why do you cancel it? Because we're in a contract. Know. Oh. Because our only options around here are Comcast otherwise known as Xfinity or AT&T. And the only way to get those good rates is to enter into a contract. If I were paying for that outside of a contract, it would be infinitely more expensive. Pam, what do you pay and get? Um, Mine is $95 a month and it's 150 Mbps, whatever that means. But I know that that's like pretty standard, right? Depending on where you're at. <laughs> yeah, depending on yeah. where you're at. Not like, not like a rural area, but like like closer to a big city. I'm sure that that is pretty attainable for most people if you can afford it. Yeah. So um, I pay, I, I don't, I'll just clarify that I live outside of the service area that my company services. So um, I have service with a different company. Um, I have a 10-in-1 connection and I pay $100 a month. And that's including... You know, I I don't I have my own access to equipment that wouldn't be including equipment fees or anything like that. A hundred dollars a month for such a slow internet connection—that's nuts. So interesting how speeds and availability and pricing vary so greatly across the country. It's a big issue. Here's the question: Is the Biden administration going to try to do anything about this? 
Yes. It, um, broadband accessibility for rural communities was, for rural communities was part of his Build Back Better plan, um, which uh, is kind of his, you know, come back from COVID plan. Um, he has set aside $20 billion for access for rural communities. Um, that's including expanding infrastructure um, in both wired and wireless connections. He's also tripling funding for some grants through the USDA, uh, which allow providers to have access to funds to be able to build out more infrastructure. Um, he has a new FCC committee which is kind of a really big deal, um, not just in terms of accessibility, but also uh, some net neutrality rules that the previous administration had rolled back. The new FCC committee, some of their bigger initiatives include improving data reporting, which is really important when uh, looking at measuring how many communities have access to broadband um, and also looking at improving the way that they map those communities. <laughs> so census data kind of when you're looking at a census block if one person on that block has access to a gig and everyone else only has access to a 10 megabyte connection it's marked as an internet accessible community oh wow. that's messed up yeah so they're looking at improving some of that and then they're also going to improve lifeline program funding which is the funding that's made available for low-income families well, and speaking of low-income families, the FCC recently approved a $50 monthly subsidy for low-income families uh, to cover internet at their home, but it's only through the pandemic. Or until funding runs out, which I've heard some estimates saying could be up could be as little as three months. They're offering the subsidy to help people who are working from home or learning from home, but why stop this after the pandemic? You know, that just seems so stupid to me. People are going to continue to need this internet, even if it's not for work and school. People depend on the internet for things other than Netflix and porn. And it's also uh, based on provider participation as well. So even if you qualify, you have to find a provider that is uh, part of that program. This just makes me think, you know, in thinking about the internet as a utility, it just seems like such bullshit that costs can vary as wildly as they do based on the supply and demand. Like it reminds me when we were talking about the heat in Texas two weeks ago, it's like these power companies, because they've been privatized and Texas has deregulated its power grid, power companies were able to charge insane premiums for people to, you know, turn on the fucking heat. Why should you, where you are, be paying more for a lesser connection than what I have. And it's not like people in rural communities are doing anything less. There are two adults living in my house and exactly. we have two cell phones. We've got computers and tablets and gaming systems. And, you know, people who live rural don't live any differently other than having less access to being able to support everything they do. Yeah. And you work for an internet company and you yes. just literally cannot get a faster connection. The grants that are made available are very helpful and they are widely, uh, they're, I wouldn't say they're easy to get, but they're made accessible to providers. Um, so for example, we just, my company just uh, won a grant to be able to install fiber in a community that is 200 people in the main, you know, the main part of the city. 
but we're going to be able to provide internet access to nearly 600 homes across that area, which is incredible for a community that's high school, you know, only graduates 30 students a year. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Something else that's been happening within government, some senators are asking the FCC to change the definition of high-speed internet. Um, This has happened, like you mentioned earlier, it's occurred before, there has been a change. But let's say the new definition is high-speed internet is 100 megabytes down and 100 up. Does that mean internet companies can't offer something as high-speed internet if it's not 100 down, 100 up? That definition is more in terms of being able to say that a community is connected rather than saying what providers can advertise. Oh, hmm. um, so, and, and when you think about it, 23 down or sorry, 25 down and 23 up is, is kind of nothing, especially compared to what you guys have. Agreed. For me, that sounds like a dream. But 10 years ago, that number was four down, one up. Right. So for, for us to have changed that definition drastically from four to 23 megabytes per second on your download speeds. Where are we going to be 10 years from now? Right. That in in the whole kind of the idea of changing the definition is being able to future proof what companies are providing to their customers. Um, We, you know, we don't want, we don't want to be in this same situation 15 years from now. So it's important to kind of make sure that what companies are installing with the funding they're given now is going to last these communities through the next 10, 15 years. And you also just think about how the internet and the features that we enjoy online and the apps we enjoy online just get more and more data heavy. They need more bandwidth so they can load faster and provide less latency. And people are getting more and more internet of things devices connected to their homes. Um, Things that people don't like your smartwatches and your smart plugs and refrigerators. I mean, things that people don't think about because they're not interacting with them on a day to day basis like you do with your phone in your face. Right. Though I vow to never buy a smart fridge. I see those (laughs) ones with the big Samsung screens. I'm like, who needs that? That's ridiculous. Just a personal opinion, though. Uh, (laughs) So to wrap up this discussion when do you see truly high-speed, reliable, and affordable internet being made available to rural or low-income towns across America? Well, I think that we would be better served to think of it as a standpoint from when will we will we be able to close the digital divide? And access to internet is just one part of that. So we'll see a, a close in the digital divide whenever there's reliable infrastructure in place to the, you know, the far reaches of these rural communities. And when we have quality monthly services that are affordable, so meaning the service isn't dropping and that the customer can afford it. Um, And when when Americans are able to afford the devices required to get online so they can actually use the internet. And then finally, when they have the knowledge to be able to use those services. So knowing that they have access to telehealth mm-hmm. and knowing they have access to education online, it's going to take every piece of that in order for us to kind of close that divide. So to kind of, to answer your question, I think that we'll see, I think that getting expanded access is obviously the first step and the most important step, but it's not the final solution. Yeah. yeah. It's going to take a while, Agreed. unfortunately. It takes a lot of money and a lot of time to build out to these communities. Yeah. Um, again, you know, when you're looking at the 
the geographical service area for some of these companies. It's hundreds and hundreds of miles to reach few customers. Yeah. And it's something that we, with high-speed internet, we just take for granted. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to, to kind of close this out, you know, it's it's important for rural communities to have this equal access to the internet because that's when you're going to get more of the the smart and the talented and the creative people staying in these communities. It's it's important for the health of a rural community to keep the, the good talent here and to improve the talent that's already here with educational opportunities and, and other resources like telehealth. Very good observation. Yeah. yeah. And it's so true. Really, I mean, everybody can benefit from more people having better internet and more affordable internet. I just think of like myself as an online internet publisher and us as somebody who creates podcasts. We want to reach as many people as possible. So we're all invested in this. It would make a huge difference for any business, whether or not you're exclusively online. All right. Well, thank you, Kayla. That was super interesting. And thank you for sharing all this information. I hope it was interesting. It's kind of gets in the weeds like you and I have have briefly discussed. But yeah, um, like you said, it's very important. And it's going to take a long, long time to get there. Well, like I said, I'm a nerd. And also, this is an important issue that should be on everybody's radar. So Kayla is going to hang around with us in After Dark today. Pam, what are we going to be doing? I think we're a continuation of our last After Dark. Yeah, actually, Laura pulled the questions this week. So last week were my picks. And then she picked some fun ones for us to oh, discuss. Laura's More, picks. Yeah. <laughs> More group interview opportunities. We're going to be answering... Um, actually, this is a perfect question, Kayla. Um, do you feel like the internet has had more of a positive or negative effect on society? <laughs> so we'll be answering <laughs> questions like that in After Dark, a good opportunity for us to probe a little bit and get to know each other better. Yeah, we had a lot of fun in the last After Dark answering some of these questions. <laughs> so I look forward to this one as well. That's going to be available at patreon.com slash millennial. We really appreciate your support. Let's make some recommendations now. I want to recommend buying Apple Care. Now, I know you might already, but sometimes you forget because they give you like a three-month window or something. Or sometimes you're like, why do I need Apple Care for, I don't know, my iPad that never leaves the house? It's going to be fine. Well, I have an Apple Watch. Apparently, I forgot to get Apple Care for this Apple Watch. And it makes a lot of sense to get Apple Care for your Apple Watch because you're taking the Apple Watch everywhere you go. So it has you know the chance of getting water on it or, or falling or hitting a wall or something like that. So anyway, my Apple Watch went kaput over the weekend. I took it into the Apple store. They're like, yeah, so we'll give you a new one because it seems like it's busted, but it's going to be $300. And I'm like, and that's just to fix it. Even if anything minor with it was wrong, it was going to be $300. I'm like, this is insane. And it's all because I don't have Apple Care. So uh, don't forget to get Apple Care. Protect your products. But I'm going to do it because I love the Apple Watch and it's still cheaper than buying a new Apple Watch. So... Yep. Former <sighs> Apple Store employee here. Definitely on your mobile devices, Apple Care is worth it. Hit or miss on your like desktop computers and things like that. But, but physical damage too. Yeah, they can, but physical damage is not covered, or at least it wasn't when I worked there, mm-hmm. um, on like your laptops and stuff, but it is covered with Apple Care Plus on the mobile devices. So like if you're prone to dropping your phone. <laughs> Um, like I am, it can come in really handy. So you're not paying hundreds of dollars for a replacement. Yeah. I would like to recommend a site that was recommended to me over the weekend. If you're into lipstick, lipslut.com. <laughs> it's 
uh, a creator who made all of these lovely shades of lipstick that have names like Fuck Trump, Notorious RBG, Fuck Kavanaugh, Fuck Hollywood, basically like a liberal wish list of what your lipsticks could be named. But the great thing about these is that with each purchase, you can make a donation as part of your purchase towards the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, any number of other um, causes. So it's great to be able to donate a portion um, of your purchase to a charity of your choice. And the lip colors are beautiful. So I see two of these are called Kevin and Jake, and it says they're made with real tears. <laughs> Explain that. Yeah. Well, they're uh, they're lip glosses, different from lipstick, um, and they're called male tears. And I guess they've just picked what they perceive to be generic male names. <laughs> so like Kevin these are Kevin's Jake. tears. These are Jake's tears. But it it says made with real tears. Somebody cries into a cup and then they... That's, <laughs> what's going on? Have I, you ever seen the coffee cups that are like male tears or like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, these yeah. are it's, made with real tears? Yes. Okay. 100%. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah. All right. Interesting. Yeah. I'm going to... Next time I see you, I'm going to put a vial up to your eye, kind of like Snape at the end of uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2. <laughs> yeah. Like cry into it. I'm good at crying when I cry when I laugh really hard. So maybe I yeah. should like donate my tears to them. You should. They can have one called Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> I would buy Andrew's male tears. <laughs> uh, uh, this came out, I think, two weeks ago now or something. But I, I just wanted to recommend the Billie Eilish documentary, The World's a Little Blurry, which is out on Apple TV Plus. If you have that, and I believe in select theaters as well, um, even if you're not a big fan of her music, I just think that the idea of Billie Eilish is very fascinating, uh, especially her relationship with her brother, which who is also her producing partner. Um, and then also just um, the idea of grappling with fame at such a young age. So it's really, really well done. It's directed by RJ Cutler. And it is just a great watch. And Kayla, what's your recommendation? I recently got a new phone, a new iPhone 12, and it's got that MagSafe technology in it. And I was really excited to be able to get a pop socket that was magnetic that I could pull off on and off, but they don't have those yet. So I found this little gadget on Amazon. It's just a little plate, a little black plate that you can stick your pop socket to, and then that turns it into a MagSafe. So I can oh. do my wireless charging and still have my pop socket. And it's got a pretty strong hold. It was like 15 bucks. Cool. That's good to know. I will never be one of these people that wears those pop sockets because it just adds so much to your phone. I'm like, I already told you that like it's okay because you your hand's probably bigger because you're a guy. Exactly. Like for yeah. girls, like my hand is too small. I yeah. can't. And I didn't pay for Apple Care on my phone, so I can't afford to drop it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah. Anyway, well, thank you for that, Kayla, and thanks for joining us on the show today. And thanks for your support on Patreon. We really appreciate all those things. Oh, it's my pleasure. You guys are great. And it's thanks for having me. Thank you. And I've been admiring your uh, wood paneling behind you because you told me you live in a <laughs> kind of cabin. And I just find that so charming. It's the benefits of being rural. It's cheaper to live out here. So to everybody else, we would love if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Millennial. Thank you in advance. If you have anything to say about 
today's episode, you can email millennialshow at gmail.com or use the contact form on millennialshow.com. Don't forget, we have our confessional there as well. And finally, follow us on social media. We are Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to today's episode. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. I'm Pamela. And I'm Kayla. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.